0: Thank you for tuning in to Game Investing Radio. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different in celebration of Veterans Day in the United States, November 11th, 2020. I want to dedicate this episode to my grandfather and his three brothers who served during World War II to protect liberty and freedom and democracy. Um, I particularly want to shout out my great-uncle Bill, who, with a little bit of courage and ingenuity, um, did something very revolutionary. I can't get too specific, but it was a spark that led to the Navy SEAL program being developed. And To me, he's an unsung hero. He's not a hero that you can look up and read about and uh, learn about. Um, But that's how big, big things get started. Big companies, big portfolios, big hedge funds. They all start with a small little spark. And that's how wars start, in fact. Now, I haven't served. I haven't gone to war um, this is a shout out to all the soldiers and American military that have protected my rights as an American, especially my freedom of speech under the Constitution and freedom of the press. These are my opinions based on being a family member. And to me, war is about survival, not winning. When you're talking about the soldiers, uh, the support personnel, people you know, doing emergency surgery, flying helicopters or vehicles. I believe that deep down inside, soldiers are there to protect each other, and they're there to survive. I've only watched it in the films and in the media. I've never gone to war, so I don't know. I was uh, alive when we did go to war uh, over in the Gulf Wars, and I did live, live through a period as a young man in America where I was fearful of getting drafted, Um, and, uh, I, I don't remember exactly my mindset during that time, but I remember that us group of guys came together and would watch war on TV and we had our own band of brothers, you know, we were together, we weren't alone. So war is a terrible thing. Um, I hope we never have any more wars on this planet. But I do want to shout out to those that have fought in the past for liberty and freedom. So today we're going to talk about war stories. And since I haven't been to war, I'm going to have to dig up my uh, entrepreneurial war stories, investing in my own businesses, brands, and company. And the way I look at investing is you're investing in a company, organization, product, brand, business, portfolio, inventory. And under the thesis that, well, business is war, um, I truly believe that the winner is the survivor. I believe there's really only one thing you need to be a master investor, master entrepreneur, retro game shop owner, eBay video game shop owner, you know, a gaming creator. You need to be a survivor. You need to outlast everybody. And the statistics say that like 95% of uh, businesses fail by year 10. So out of 100 people that start a podcast, a YouTube channel, an eBay video game, retro game shop, a mail order company, uh, you know, an Instagram, Facebook, Shopify, retro game shop, or even people that do day trading, it's probably even higher in day trading. Uh, in the stock market, but it's like, you know, there's a handful of people left at year 10. There might be one, two, or three people that you know in your entire life that started something and celebrated the 10th year anniversary. I'm one of those lucky people, but there are war stories. I only have a few companies that survived past year 10. Um, I've probably tried to start 20 uh, business projects, businesses, companies, brands, corporations, LLCs, uh, and I've traded hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stock. I've I've invested millions of dollars into my own um, education, companies, projects, businesses, brands, and today, I guess I'm going to try to give you lessons and wisdom, and I'm going to have to tell stories because there's a lot of bad shit. There's some great shit, and it all starts with dreams. So let's get into it. I think I'm going to start with the one that pretty much rocked my world and taught me one of the biggest wisdoms that I've carried forward today that has helped me survive corona. And that was the company that I started in Japan. I was, uh, I was an English teacher after I graduated college. My dream was just to get abroad. Get an apartment. Get a visa. Get abroad. Uh, that you know, the government put me on a plane, and uh, you know, gave me a little omiyage, which is a gift, and they set me up in an apartment. And I taught English in uh, you know a suburb of Japan. When that was over, I had a dream. I had a secret dream all along because I had started another company, which I'll get into next um, during college. But I had a dream. I I had worked on cars quite a bit of my life. My first car, um, you know, was a Frankenstein muscle car. I grew up near a, a, a raceway now known as, well, I'm not going to name that, but, uh, I grew up n- near a NASCAR raceway. And, uh, you know, my first job was pumping gas and I was really into cars. So my secret dream was to import, export cars. And I had no money. I had no connections. I had nothing but a dream. And that's how it starts. You know, the Navy SEAL program, started with someone jumping in the water and I'll leave it at that it wasn't it wasn't you know I want to hold my breath for 3 minutes and get dropped out of a helicopter and and you know go into a foreign country without the media knowing about it and doing black ops that's not how it started the navy seal program I know this for a fact started with two guys jumping in the water in their underwear They didn't have any equipment, no goggles, no laser, no guns, just their skivvies. And that's how things start. They start naked. Things start with a dream. Google, Facebook, all of them, Amazon. Amazon started with a, you know, Bezos loaded his station wagon up with books, used books. You know, that's how it started. That's how a trillion dollar company started. Anyway, let's get back to my war story. So I had a big dream. I wanted to import, export Ferraris, Porsches. I wanted to, you know, bring skylines out of Japan. Uh, we're talking mid-90s. You know, this is way before the GTR released in, Japan, in America, if you happen to know about that car. That's a Nissan. They call it Godzilla. Um, I had really big dreams as a kid. So I tried to start two companies in Tokyo. One of them failed. It was a consulting company because I had no relationships, nothing, um, no money, no relationships. I couldn't really write Japanese Uh, Reading was pretty much impossible, so I guess while I was walking home from an English lesson in Tokyo, after I got done with my one-year contract with the government, I moved back to Tokyo because I thought that was the city I could get something going, so I was walking home from an English class, I happened to be in my suit. And, I, and I, I'm walking down the street, um, you know, going back to my little tiny, tiny, tiny matchbox apartment with shared bathrooms, shared kitchen and all that, like a barrack. And um, I see a card shop sign, like sports cards or baseball cards. I think it said kids field. I walked in, flipping through the cards. And it's been a while, a blast from the past because I had a card shop in college I'll talk about next. That's another war story. But um, I ended up meeting the owner. We ended up, you know, really getting along and long story short, because today's podcast is probably going to go on five hours. um, He convinced me and I convinced him to start a new company. Go back to the USA, open or buy a card shop, go get manufacturer direct accounts, hook up with distributors and build a supply chain for me. And I will spend tens of thousands of dollars with you, Hopper, every month. You just ship that stuff directly to me in Japan and declare half the value. It all sounded, you know, quite easy. And I was like, okay, all I got is a business card. I, I, you know, I spent like a hundred bucks on a bilingual business card. That's all I had. Uh, I didn't have my MBA. I did have experience. I had owned and started one card shop. So I think it was the suit, my knowledge, that I could speak Japanese and that I had the experience. So those are some lessons those might be some things that you might want to try to develop as you start your own retro game shop so long story short i i got off the plane i bought a card shop got a loan through my parents and a bank um 10 grand i think and i did it fast because i had done it at another card shop earlier in my career I set up with manufacturers. I had the Nike application in hand. I had accounts with Casio, Tops, Beckett, uh, Fleer. You know, I had a, a direct manufacturer accounts with everybody. I was faxing manufacturer information to Japan at a dollar a minute. Way before the internet, we were doing phone calls that lasted an hour that would cost me like a hundred bucks. He was sending me lists and lists of stuff to buy, and everything I bought, he would buy. So there was no inventory risk. Everything I bought. He would swallow it up, and uh, you know I would mark up the hard stuff, the collectible stuff, at twenty percent. I'd mark up the direct stuff at ten percent. Very low margins, very high volume, and it was going great for a while because I had a store. The cash register was ringing every day. That was bringing in a couple hundred, and back in the nineties, that's a lot of money. So you know my my fanny pack had hundreds of dollars of cash every night. And every so often, I'd get a $10,000 wire transfer from Japan. And the UPS driver was coming by every week, dropping off poundage, you know, pounds and pounds of uh, of sports card collectibles. And I didn't even have to do anything to it. i just pack it up and send it to Japan. I even did some watches. I was going to get into sneakers and apparel. And I hooked up with an, another importer in uh, Harajuku in, in Tokyo. Things were going great. You know, I was really moving towards that dream of maybe I could do a car and then two cars and then three cars. And then the shit hit the fan. Um, it started with a, a macroeconomic event in Thailand where the banking system melted down and there was a currency crisis in Thailand, which happened to be a place where Japan, Japan's banks and conglomerates were heavily invested This was way before made in China, made in Taiwan really took off. I mean, back in the day, it was kind of made in Vietnam, made in Thailand, made in China, you know, made in Indonesia. They were, they were, um, they, I mean, the big companies that you invest in today, they were doing supply chains all over Asia. It wasn't hammered out that China was the place, which it became, you know, I would say in the last two decades, but basically The Asian financial crisis started with a currency crisis that created a banking crisis in Thailand. And what happened is that infected the Japanese banking system because I believe that all Asian currencies are interconnected. So there's a banking crisis in Thailand. It turned into a banking crisis in Japan, which turned into a recession in Japan. It's called the Asian financial crisis or the Asian flu. You can Google it. And I find out that my, my buddy in Japan who has three stores that I'm supplying uh, all over Japan, his main Tokyo store, another store up north, another store in another island called Kyushu, I do believe. You know, he's buying a lot of product from me, which is, you know, 20, 30 grand a month, which is a lot of money back then. That's probably like 50 to 100 right now per month. And um, he starts falling behind. And, and, and long story short, I find out, it was really long story short, I find out, because we're 13 minutes in, I could probably do an hour on this, but I find out that his backer, I don't know the specifics, but in Japan, every company is backed by some sort of banker, investor, you know, all the big conglomerates are really owned by the banks or the government. So even his little operation, he had a, you know, three-store three chain, he was backed by a silent partner I found out that's a banker. So this banker, I don't know this, this is speculation, but I assume this banker got in trouble. And he started tearing into my buddies. Um, and by the way, we had a written contract. That's what I walked off the plane from Japan. I negotiated a written contract from a napkin onto a full-blown, uh, you know, kanji, hiragana, katakana, English bilingual contract. I, I Arranged through Jetro. I did have a laptop. I had one thing. I had a laptop and a portable printer and a business card. That's all I had in Japan. So I got a, I got a, a half million dollar contract signed before I left Japan, which is just one of the biggest accomplishments in my life. But it didn't end well. So I've got the contract. I think I'm looking good. You know, I, he's the, the lady buying the watches, by the way, had dropped out by this time. Cancer. You know, the shit hit the fan. I mean, the shit hit the fan. It's called bad luck. Um, I don't even know if that's true. I assume it's true. So I lost one exporter, one importer. And then this guy tells me, you know, things are getting bad in Japan. And here's what I find out. Long story short, there was three to 500 sports card and collectible shops in Japan during the peak, I would say maybe early nineties. This hit around 98, nine, maybe Um, mid nineties was doing really good. And then I find out that, like, he can't pay, he's falling behind, uh, the whole economy is is going in the toilet, and people aren't buying collectibles. And, uh, you know, they have 500 card shops, sports card collectible shops in Japan, and if you look at Japan today, there might be one independent shop, maybe two independent shops, and then there's one large chain that maybe has 10 shops. So 500 store owners, you know, ninety nine percent of them or something over ninety percent of them were gone they were wiped out in that one big event called the asian financial crisis very similar to the uh global financial crisis created that started with the lehman bankruptcy so it was tough you know i fell into drugs and alcohol i actually uh, ended up in a mental hospital i had a nervous breakdown that's when um my bipolar manifested um It was very hard for me to process that I was on top of the world one moment and then something that happened in the Thailand banking system basically took me, you know, one step away from homelessness. Uh, You know, I was I was walking out of my store, proud store owner, exporting every day money in my pocket money in the bank account i had 20 accounts with the suppliers manufacturers distributors i had hundreds of retail customers i was serving and uh, it all came crashing down rather suddenly and it was a macroeconomic shock so the lesson really is there you know the lesson is to start up to go to war you're going to need a few things, you know, you need a computer, you need experience, you need knowledge, you need relationships, maybe a contract, but even with all the best equipment in the world, just like my great-uncle Bill dove into that water in his skivvies, which led to the Navy SEAL program, thank you for serving, Bill, um, that doesn't guarantee anything. If you have a gun or equipment or a, a great brand or, you know, money in the bank, it doesn't mean anything if you're in war and an atomic bomb drops over there, and it might not even drop on you, but the repercussions and the collateral damage could just destroy your business and company. Suddenly, you know your business and services could be irrelevant, and that's what we saw in Corona. So what is the wisdom? What is the wisdom? I always say play life like a video game, and the goal is to grab wisdom out of failure. I failed. I was on top of the world, He failed in Japan. That led to my failure in America. And you know what? The wisdom there uh, from a health standpoint is family is the most important thing. And health is right up there with it. So I would say the most important thing is family and health. Because without family, I would have been dead. I would have ended up, you know, dead on the street. Oh, that's emotional. I'm alive today because of my family, because of my mom and dad. So that's the wisdom. And we all know that. Most of you know that because you have families and kids. I don't have kids. All my kids are right here on this little note I'm going to talk about today. Um, And most of them are gone. So, you know, today's a little bit of a negative, but, uh, you know, war isn't pretty. and, And it's all about surviving, and I'm alive today. And just like Tyson... I just watched, I've been watching a lot of Tyson. Um, you know, that's my best position. I have a lot of failed investments in video games I'll talk about someday, probably at the end of the year. I'm going to make a big mistakes episode. And um, Tyson says the same thing. You know, people p- pepper him with questions and he says, Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. You know, I love my parents. I love my mom. I love my dad. I love Bill. You know, I love my experiences. I have to. I have to forgive myself, and I have to walk away knowing that health and family is what carried me through and made me a survivor. And here I am on my 20th business, and it finally looks like, you know, I'm on to something. I'm able to give back. So, from an investment standpoint, um, when you're investing in something, I would say have a contingency or a backup plan. And that's the other wisdom, is... You know, rather than me putting all my eggs in the Japan basket, it would have been nice to have maybe a European importer that I was supplying as well. Um, And I did have backup plans. I had another store. I split my store in two. And I'll get to that in a few more stories. You know, I had backup plans. And, uh, yeah, sometimes even backup plans, plan A, plan B, plan C, don't work out. So, really, you just have to be a survivor. Hopefully, that helps. Um, I'm going to take a little break, and then we'll come and talk about the card shop that led to the experience that led to the con- the half-million-dollar contract that he convinced him that I could do, you know, manufacture accounts and know which cards to buy and know my products and all that. So, I'll be right back. Actually, you know what? I can go into it right now. I don't need a break. I got over the tears that was tough i mean the mental hospital stuff getting down to 100 pounds not eating for 40 days i could not understand why i lost everything because of some thailand banking crisis very hard to process that led to me actually um going to get an mba because i realized that even though i had owned two card shops an export company you know i had started several business projects i had been online and You know, I was first mover online. I was on eBay. That's another thing that I didn't mention. The way I got all the collectible products for my uh, export partner was eBay, dial-up. And uh, I was a first mover on eBay, and I was actually a buyer. I wasn't even selling on eBay. I was buying up a storm and receiving boatloads of mail every day, and i package all that up and send it to Japan. So that's the other takeaway and wisdom is if you do get in early on something like, let's say, TikTok or LinkedIn right now, um, even if you fail, you should be able to take wisdom to carry further into the future, let's say, into another brand, another company, maybe another team, maybe another partnership, another store, another state, another country. Failure doesn't really mean the game's over. It just means you're a survivor and you have more wisdom. So, how did I get that experience to leverage into an export company that did a half million for a short period of time or maybe a million over a year? Well, when I was, uh, after I had dropped out of college and uh, kind of got disillusioned by um, computer science in the 80s, I was a hardcore gamer, computer programmer. I got into a very high level uh, university as a programmer. And uh, back then, there was no Facebook, Google, you know, there was nothing. Our dreams were to program video games and get a job with electronic arts or maybe broader bun, maybe Activision. Um, that was the dream back in the day. And, um, you know, Silicon Valley wasn't doling out $200,000 contracts of programmers. They were like, you know, we were like grunts. It was like, it was like pioneering. It was like, you know, doing YouTube today. It's like, you're lucky if you make 10 grand. That's kind of how coding was back in the day. It was like starting a YouTube channel, you know? you were just going into the jungle. And um, so, you know, I I was too early. I was 20 years too early. Um, And I dropped out of the computer science engineering program in year three because of my GPA. I fell into partying, sports, uh, friends, relationships, traveling, um, you know, uh, all that stuff, drinking, smoking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I ended up going to Japan, trying to make it over there. This was way before I did the export gig. Um, And I failed in Japan. I tried to get a job teaching English, but uh, time and time again, they said, you need a college degree. You need a college degree. You know, I was holed up in Tokyo, going to discos and having a blast as a young kid traveling. Um, And, uh, you know, I I realized that I got to go finish my education. So I called up my best college buddy. I I had I, I thought I had flushed four years down the toilet uh, in education, but I, I ended up on his couch and he took me in and um, I got a part-time job. I had a car, I, you know, I had a $300 car that I fixed up. So I had a car, I had a couple suitcases of clothes. Um, I was on his couch and I don't know how it happened, but I, I think I got into a Costco with a friend and somehow bought a box of cards for five bucks. And, uh, you know, I had never collected sports cards. And I looked at the cards and I'm all, well, look, so you can get three Michael Jordans, three Tim Hardaway rookies. You can get this, you can get this, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. This doesn't make sense. You can open this box and get 10 or $20 worth of cards. And I'm all, hmm, and I'm a mathematical guy. So I'm I'm, I'm living on on my buddy's couch I've got maybe $20 worth of inventory of sports cards. I get a part-time job at a bank, somehow convince them to hire me. Um, I don't know how that even worked out, but I got a job as a teller at a bank. So I'm making five, seven bucks an hour. So I save up, you know, like maybe 700 bucks and I'm living on my buddy's couch. He's not charging me anything. You know, we're sharing food and I build up 700 bucks and I invest, I invest the whole thing into a lease in a mixed-use building where on the first floor there was like a, a fish tank shop and maybe a tattoo parlor or Mexican restaurant. And then on the second floor, there was like these pretty dingy, scummy little um, apartments. So I, I rented I rented the top right apartment up the stairs that faced the street and it was technically you know, a street facing storefront in a way because it was, uh, it was zone mixed use or commercial. And I knew this somehow. I don't know how I even knew this, but this is before the internet. So you either go to the library or you just roll the dice. I think I was just rolling the dice. So I got the apartment. I didn't tell him I was starting a business. I didn't tell the landlord. I never got a business license because, uh, it was in the County. It wasn't in the city. You don't need a business license in the County. Got a seller's permit uh, through the state. That's free, you know, and that allows you to hook up with manufacturers and distributors. So it was a one-bedroom apartment. The living room was 300 square feet, and the back was like 250 with one tiny little bathroom, tiny little kitchenette. And we ended up with three guys living there. We had three CRT TVs. I cut the cable on top. We had sports going 24-7 we were diehard sports fans and my college buddies, you know, was an elite athlete. He actually turned into become a coach. He's shock. If you want to listen up, he's my first guest on the podcast episode, a uh, special guest shock. So he was my best college buddy. He didn't live in the back, but he was kind of like our leader. And, and we all lived in the back. We skimped. And the whole thing I think was like 700 bucks a month. So I scraped up 700 to get the lease. And I think I scraped up another three to 500 and I hand built the nicest glass cases in in the county. Um, And we didn't have any inventory. So the great news, long story short, we turned the living room into a card shop. We lived in the back. And uh, I mean, at one point we had 12 to 20 people in the back. I mean, the great times were that we were the place to go, you know, like, before Friday or Saturday night, everyone came by and said, what's going on this weekend? You know, what's the sports news? And we were the sports cards information source. So everything was going great for a while. We weren't making a lot of money because we didn't have any inventory. We didn't have any uh, money to invest. And when we did generate some money, we got a credit card and we we uh, invested in a pitcher by the name of Tom Glavin and a couple other people like Gary Sheffield and, uh, I really can't remember the others, but we took some massive gambles with all of our capital. And then the bad shit start happening. The first thing was the recession. So, um, cards once again went through, you know, the Japanese thing happened earlier. No, that happened later. This was before the Japanese. So I think we had a recession before Asia and then, um, And then, of course, you know, I'm moving along in my education and I have to think about graduation. So long story short, it went on for three years, which is a great thing. And we got online. We started selling and buying cards online via dial-up before the Internet, before eBay, before Amazon. Um, We were in the back of the store with a dial-up modem paying, you know, 30 bucks a month to uh, talk to card shops all around the country, coin dealers and all that. So we were really ahead of our time, but we had no money uh, all we had was time and energy, and we were having a blast. So, let me uh, try to think of the great stuff, the bad shit, the lessons, and the wisdom, and I'll be right back. Okay, back to my first company, The Card Shop. Um, yeah, it was going great for a while. We were the place to be. We were partying like rock stars. You know, we had hundreds of people that knew about us, riding the bike to classes. Everyone's. Hey, Hopper. Hey, Hopper. Hey, Hopper. Hey, Hopper. What's up? What's up? You know, I was really popular and had so many friends, maybe not with the women, but with the guys, with the sports, you know, we were blowing up on the college basketball scene. Our uh, our team uh, beat the national champions for their only loss of the season. I mean, we were on TV um, and, you know, we were we were late nights at Kinko's printing up a hundred flyers that we designed on a tiny little uh, computer that our buddy had stole for us because we were so broke. and we would print that out on color paper, not not color ink. And then we would, uh, you know, we would attack the parking lot after the basketball games and put out all our flyers and 50% off these rookie cards and all that kind of stuff. So it was going great. We were selling online. We were buying online via dial-up before eBay, before the internet, before .dot com. Um, you know, we were uh, moving right along. We were having a blast. Um, we were also we we were also doing a little bit of business. You know, we hooked up with a manufacturer and we actually ordered something direct from the manufacturer to try to fill out our shelves. Um, we were trying to do business with customers. And then the shit hit the fan. The first thing that happened, which reminds me of going to war, was one of our customers that we actually were consigning uh, some higher-end cards like a Magic Johnson Rookie that is sold for as much as 100000 recently. You know, we had it consigned in our shop for $300 dollars. We were actually there the day he announced that he had AIDS and was going to retire. I mean, there was almost tears in our card shop. It was just intense. I could go on and on and on about stories that happened in the store, but that's not what this is about. This is about war and being a veteran of war and surviving. So um, the real shit hit the fan when people would come into our store and laugh at our inventory. We knew they were laughing behind our backs. We had, you know, a tiny little shop we plastered a sports illustrated magazine all over the walls. We couldn't really afford any memorabilia. So the whole walls were covered with, uh, you know, cutouts from magazines and we put in some cheap green carpet. It looked beautiful. You know, it was cheap, but it was beautiful. The glass cases were handmade by me. Um, thick glass. It was a baseball stadium. We had a center field and a left and a loge and all that baseball, football, you know, whatever. Um, but the inventory itself was very weak. I mean, compared to a card shop you'd walk in today, it was probably one to 5% of the typical inventory you would see on YouTube or whatever. So here's what happened. Like one of the guys that we trusted that we were doing business with, who was consigning like that Magic Johnson rookie card, a $300 rookie card by the way back in the day was just astronomical. I mean, nobody was paying $100 for a card. Most people, most kids would come in and spend $1 to $3. Most college kids would come in and maybe buy a $5 card and then $5 worth of packs to gamble a little. Sometimes someone would buy a $10 card. So we trusted this guy. He trusted us. He he you know he gave us a $300 card to put out. and And if we got a customer, we would kind of get maybe 10 or 20% or something. I don't remember the deal. But long story short, he goes up and opens a card shop. He had more experience than us, he had more inventory than us, he obviously had more money than us, and he goes down one block away and opens a card shop, and it's called the Sports Junkie, and we went to war, you know, we called it the Sports Chunky, we're telling our kids, you know, to go over there and spy, Um, sometimes we, we got drunk thinking about, oh man, I want a Molotov cocktail that place you know, and we never did anything violent. We never did anything bad. It wasn't a legitimate hot war, but emotionally it was really hard. It was really hard knowing that they were bigger and better. And it was our idea. We were the first sports card shop in Santa Barbara's college town ever. And, um, you know that's kind of something that's like a legacy i can carry today and and in fact that brand has survived that's the brand altered shot which is a ebay store on uh on uh altshot and uh, you know it has a half million dollar worth, worth of inventory today it's also got a facebook page but you know there's not a lot of traffic i don't really have any customers from back in the original altered shot um, uh, it's I guess it's a brand, but the company itself um, was sold off um, after another customer came in, looked around, and opened another card shop. So, you know, within, I'd say, a year or two, we were, like, the second or third card shop in the entire Santa Barbara area. And then within a year after us opening, two or three customers went and opened their own shops. So, like, the shops doubled. The customer base was the same. Um, and that was a nightmare. Um, you know, I mean, investing in business, investing in inventory, it's all supply and demand. So the supply doubled or tripled, probably went five X because all those card shop owners brought out their entire collections and put them in the inventory and in the glass cases. And we're just skimping along, you know, we would sell 10, 20, $30 a day and be lucky to pay for a dinner. That's kind of where we were at. And, um, but we were online. That was really a big one you know we could we could do larger deals online which didn't rely on the local economy but i don't think our competitors were doing that so the local economy really the supply went five ten x the demand was either flat or down because of the recession and we could tell that we were fading out by you know the second year um it was definitely not one of those companies that got a lot of traction we got a lot in the beginning um but after you know, our customer opened down the street and our other customer, which was, which was a girl that I had worked with at the bank when I was living on my buddy's couch. She was a coworker, a trusted coworker. Um, I think I even had my bank account at the bank when she was still working there. And like I, I inspired people to open companies and that's what's happening with the podcast. You know, my first shock wants to do a podcast. Dan did a podcast. Um, Kelsey and Frank are doing a podcast on Anchor, I heard, which is where this podcast started. So same darn thing happened. What are the lessons? Well, is war and competition never end, never sleeps. Uh, Mark Cuban, if you want to learn about that one, look up Mark Cuban. He started his career buying a, a bar in his college town, just like we did. He started a retail deal in his college town. He got to the billionaire status. I have yet to break through middle low income, you know, so I've got my way to go. Um, But Mark Cuban says you have to outwork all of your competitors and you have to assume they're doing 12 hour days. If they're doing 12 hour nights, you've got to do 14 hour nights. And that's probably something that we didn't get. We were living and breathing sports 24 seven. But as far as studying sports cards, um, I guess we weren't putting in the hard work, come to think of it. We were putting in the hard work on sports. We knew the players. We knew the teams. We knew who was going to win championships. We knew the trades. We knew the injuries. We knew the coaches. You know, we knew the brands. Um, I'm talking American sports, primarily basketball, baseball, football, not really hockey and and soccer. But that really wasn't a thing. It was all baseball and basketball back then. Um So the lesson there is always assume that if you have a good idea, someone else is going to steal it, copy it, uh, take it further with more money. So that's where my MBA wisdom comes in, where we learned that starting a business, which is basically an investment into an idea, if you're investing into an idea, the most important thing is team, and that's relationships. And that team today um, I'll say that that altered shot team, one of them went on to be a coach of a division one. He went to the Olympic trials. Um, he works for a city as a content manager and creator. Another one became a lawyer, um, and, uh, has a very successful family, married a cheerleader, a, a Raiders cheerleader, um, beautiful kids, beautiful family. The guy that, uh, got us the, uh, computer that we were running out of the back of the shop. He he's managing a car dealership, uh, you know, and I'm sure he's a millionaire. He owns real estate. Um, he manages a team of 100. He gets a piece of the action. You know, he's he's managing a million, multi-million dollar balance sheet. Another guy that lived across the way that was his buddy uh, ended up becoming a millionaire as well, um, doing uh, uh, China consulting for uh, uh, supply chains over there. Um all the all the team all the altered shot team members have become financially successful with happy families. Um I'm really the only one. I'm the founder of the whole thing and I really haven't made it yet. I mean, well, I guess this podcast has made it in a way because I realized that I have so much to offer. I have so much wisdom to offer. Um and now that I can give back and help people, maybe that will lead to my success um you know we'll see so from the card shop itself the lessons are um outwork your competition and the wisdom is don't put all your eggs in one basket so like we made some bad investments um where we had to take a haircut and we bet way too much on just a few cards and it would have been better to Diversify like Ray Dalio and Warren Buffett are doing right now, either geographically or maybe, you know, we should have put, um, you know, like 30 percent in baseball, 30 percent in basketball, etc. I think we did it all in baseball, only two cards. So we should have done, you know, like five baseball positions, five basketball positions, five football positions and maybe five wax box positions. if, if, If I'm looking back and could do it all over again. Um, I forgot to mention the highlight of that whole roller coaster. And we did a card show in Las Vegas with the team. We rented a car. We loaded it up with our inventory. We shut the store down. There was a card show in Vegas. We stayed at the Dunes, which is now the uh, the Bellagio. And uh, our leader, Shock, many years later, would always stay at the Bellagio because we had remembered staying at the dunes during that time when we did a card shop and we did have some really high highlights such as that, you know, business trip to Las Vegas, which was just a blast. We had a blast. I think we even saw a game and we ended up going to Vegas 20 times because of uh, you know, the love of sports and, and the sports card industry and all that. So that's uh that's my first business that led to the Japan um, drama and the Asian financial crisis, mental hospital and all that. Once I got out of the mental hospital, I, uh, I tried to go get an MBA. And at the same time, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start another card shop because I got all of the inventory. Um, I guess I can't talk about the skateboard shop because we're already at 50 minutes. There's too many businesses for me to talk about. I have so many war stories. I don't know where to go. Um, I guess I gotta go to the Card Pro because that is uh, an atomic bomb. The Card Pro um, was my best store. And that was a store I started as an MBA student coming out of the mental hospital with the inventory that was left over from the Asian financial crisis war story. where I moved back to my parents' house. They didn't charge me rent and I was running, you know, running out of a dial-up connection. I made some connections online. eBay was just starting up. I was doing okay on eBay. I didn't have those manufacturer accounts anymore because you actually had to send in pictures to sports card manufacturers for them to give you accounts. And I really wanted those accounts again, even though I had lost the Japanese connection. So I uh I found a beautiful uh, rental unit. It was a retail storefront in a beautiful strip mall, uh, you know, right in wine country on a highway. And I got in for like 800 bucks a month in in, in probably 99 or 2000. And it was wonderful. I did a card show before that. And, um, and uh, I was... I was still operating out of my house and, um, I, I had the biggest setup at the card show I had because I had the leftover inventory for my store and and the Japanese thing. Once the Japanese guys stopped buying, I ended up with a lot of inventory at the end. I even had skateboards, t-shirts, videos, records, you know, sports cards. Uh, I had it, I had a whole bunch of inventory. So I was online and then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like, why don't I do a show? So at the card show, This tall young kid kept coming over to my table because I was the only dealer that had graded sports cards, kind of like Wada and and VGA. I was really early in graded sports cards. I was like one of the only ones doing it. I think in the in the, I guess early nineties, maybe right around two thousands. I had graded sports cards, and nobody was doing that. Maybe in Southern California, but I didn't see it in Northern California. And this tall. This tall kid kept coming over to my table, and I'm like, "You're a dealer," and he was like 15. I'm like, "Wow, you're a dealer," and uh, you know, he's set up across the hall, and um, and uh, he keeps coming over like three, four times because I had racks of wax, I had graded cards, I had single cards, I had it all, and he he kept flipping through my graded cards like it really. I think he thought that I was different. I think he thought maybe you know John's just uh, not another card dealer. Hopper, Hopper has a different take on things, and I guess I inspire people. You know that's what I'm learning on today's podcast is I inspire people, which is very bizarre. I never went out to do that. I'm funny, they tell me too, and I don't try to be funny. Um, I don't try to inspire. I'm just trying to give people lessons. So long story short, this tall kid and I become business partners, and we we open this store and it's a legitimate store we've got a sign out front we got a business license we got a seller's permit you know we're legit with PGE. um you know we've got 11 glass cases we've got uh you know custom paint we've got a custom mural in the back we've got a uh, you know tons of inventory a beautiful open sign neon sign we've got manufactured signage all over the place we've got a uh, Boys and Girls Club uh, candy machine. We've got uh, Better Africa. I'm working with nonprofits. We've got a little dice game where you can win prizes. You know, we're doing pizza nights, trade nights. We're working with manufacturers, distributors, and it's going great. You know, we've. You know, I I roll up in my brand new truck every day. You know, I, b- I bought the brand the only brand new truck of my life. I just got married. I'm getting a master's in business. Things are just blowing up, and you know, we're you. You we roll up to the store with the keys. You open the door with pride. You 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 wipe down the glass cases. You you do the cash register, and you wait for people to come in, and you talk sports and cards and and investing and speculating and rookies and teams and all that and steroids sometimes and the bad things and. And then, you know, you start talking, you're hearing about other card shops doing prices and grinding. And and things were going really well for a while. I mean, from a community standpoint, we were blowing up and we were doing great. We were the only card shop in town. Um, you know, I had traffic coming from other towns because we were on a highway. Um, but financially, things weren't so great because I was financing everything with credit cards and I was only marking everything up 40%. And the reason was... In the card industry in those days, it was cutthroat. There was dealers everywhere, part-time dealers. And and the wax that came from the manufacturers would drop day one. And if the card shop over there was selling it for $2 a pack, you had to do $2 a pack or no one would buy it. So it didn't matter how much you bought stuff for. Basically, the market was set by the chatter, and it wasn't the internet. It was just people talking to each other. We had the internet. We had a funky website, but we weren't really selling on eBay. We were just poking around eBay, and it was auctions only at the time. So, you know, um, it was quite amazing, actually, for the graded stuff, because I would throw that up, and, you know, 40% of it would sell. You'd throw up 10 auctions, and four of them would sell, um, you know, if you're doing reserves or whatever, which weren't so much back then. So... The shit hit the fan in one night. Um, We woke up one day and turned on the TV. There was no internet, really, for news. And the Twin Towers were going down, and it was a terrorist attack. We were going to war. Um, Overnight, America changed. And overnight, our beautiful community-based small business and retail store died. I mean, it was really clear. I remember to this day opening the front door, and uh, it was a somber day. It it was it was a tough day. Um, you know, turning on the cash register and wondering why would anyone buy a collectible now? You know why why would someone buy a sports card? I mean, we're we're fearful for our life. We're thinking about uh, getting drafted into the military. Uh, We're thinking about getting laid off. We're thinking about, you know, how are we going to pay rent? It's a lot like Corona, COVID nineteen, very similar situation. But the fear, the 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 fear of losing, the fear of death, was was I think more sudden and more visual than Corona, because a lot of people haven't really met someone with corona but when you saw the twin towers melt down and that airplane go into that thing and, and explode like a fireball and 3000 people die and people jumping out of the skyscraper landing on the pavement i mean it was a shock to the nation and i i knew i knew like as soon as i opened the door to my store um it was over there was no way i was going to pay my credit cards with sports cards after um you know the president declared war and you know the Gulf War followed and uh from what I understand we had three thousand card shops in America. Um I would say we had five thousand globally is what I estimate because I knew there was seven hundred in Japan. So we had at least five thousand card shops before nine eleven and I think within a year there was maybe a hundred, you know, I mean, they say 99% of some businesses goes bankrupt. And I believe it, you know, if you're talking card shops from the year 1990 through nine 11, I would say 99% went bankrupt. Now I'm not blaming my failure on nine 11. You know, uh, my two mistakes, the lessons learned there are, you've got to mark stuff up. And I didn't learn that until like business number 10, thanks to my business partners and my wife, my second wife. Um, I learned that it's okay to make a profit. Um, and I didn't really understand that as a college kid, grad school. I was trying to help the community. I was trying to help people with the lowest possible prices. I was trying to give people the best stuff. For Sometimes, oftentimes I would sell below cost to dealers to try to help them out. I was trying to help people out by offering low prices, and I didn't understand that that doesn't necessarily help the entire community. Because if you if you fall out of the community, that actually hurts the community. So that's probably lesson number one. Lesson number two, again, is very similar to the Asian financial crisis, the COVID-19, the global financial crisis, 9-11 is. And also, you know, investing in baseball instead of diversifying is eggs in one basket. but. I think looking back now with the wada thing and Corona, um the wisdom I guess is macro. I guess macro really is the wisdom. I think I think when we're starting a company, investing in games, collecting, starting a retro game shop, starting an eBay store, we think about a lot of details, a lot of micro. We kind of assume, oh, if we fill up a store, it'll sell. But don't forget about the macro. What I learned, the macro is the stuff you can't control. So you can control your eBay store, your inventory, what you sell, your pricing. You can't really control your customers, so I guess that's part of the macro. The macro is the stuff you can't control. Economies, banking, um, um, war. So we went to war um with the Middle East. It was an oil war. Um, and that changes everything. That changes all the investments, every Wall Street stock, you know, that changes every company across America, just like it did in COVID-19. These are, I mean, there are war stories left and right. It's just it's just been decades of war, and I hope we're going to move into a healing uh, period for mankind. It's time to heal. I'm hoping my war stories can help. But the wisdom really is macro. And I don't know if I have time to go into my current businesses, but maybe we're just going to leave it at that big three there. Um, the way I took that wisdom into corona and into my current... um businesses which are game investing great in games altered shot on ebay um i've got a couple other companies on other platforms so i have about seven companies and brands right now i'm running they're all doing well um so number one i diversified i'm completely over diversified so i'm actually paranoid and i think the founder of intel is the one that came up with that he said only the paranoid survive so in business it's war and only the you know, people think it war is about winning, not for the soldiers. That's the politicians and the bankers, but the soldiers on the ground that are trying to keep each other from dying. It's about survival. And sometimes you have to, you know, hurt the other side to survive, but really it's about survival. You do it as a unit, as a team. You're never out there alone. You always have each other's backs. You always have a contingency plan. You always have multiple, you know, you have a knife, you have a gun, you have a sidearm, you have a rifle, you have multiple weapons. That's kind of how you need to do it in business now. You need to be on TikTok. You need to be on Insta. You need to be on Facebook. You got to take that stuff serious. Creating content is going to war and people are going to outcreate you every day. So the wisdom is the macro. I can't control the macro. The macro is stuff like the YouTube algorithm, the TikTok algorithm, the Instagram algorithm, the Facebook ads that are being pounded at us, the gurus that say you can get rich quick which I just don't believe. Uh, I have never gotten rich and I've tried to start 20 companies and I've worked 80 hour weeks for decades. There is no get rich quick. You can get wise. You can get smart quick, get wise slow. Um, So the macro, let's get back to the big wisdom of the day. It's the macro. So the other one is economics. And as soon as Corona hit, I actually went into a bipolar episode very similar to the Asian financial crisis where I ended up in a mental hospital, um, hooked up to an IV at 110 pounds, completely hallucinating, Um, just, you know, complete nervous breakdown because I didn't understand that macroeconomics could, over over the Pacific Ocean, you know, 10,000 miles away, could shut down my whole operation. And Only the Paranoid Survive founder of Intel. So, Mark Cuban, outwork everybody. That's what I did in Corona. I went paranoid, I went bipolar, I completely diversified, and I outworked everybody I knew. I outworked everybody on social media, I outworked everybody on financing, I outworked everybody on credit. I tried to outwork everybody on real estate and that failed trying to build a, a gaming warehouse failed, but it did turn into game, Great and great in Games, eBay, which turned into Great and in Games brand, which turned into game investing brand, which turned into a podcast, which turned into a eBay, another eBay store, I think, or a Twitter or something, which might turn into a magazine and a YouTube channel and all this other stuff. Failure can lead to wisdom, which can lead to something else. So the macroeconomic thing that I'm going to, that the lesson from the uh, 9-11 meltdown By the way, we sold the store, we walked away. The people that bought the store on eBay for five grand, um, you know, they failed at the store after six months going into Pokemon, which didn't take off at that time. They went into Pokemon and failed. Can you believe that? You know, Pokemon took decades to blow up. Those two girls that bought my store for five grand also failed, but I sold a $50,000, you know, uh, worth of inventory and goodwill for five grand filed for bankruptcy, lost the new truck, got a divorce. Oh gosh, it was a tough one. Out of that, I learned a lot about credit. I learned a lot about entities, macro, macro defense is really the wisdom that I want to talk about for the last minute. What I did in Corona is I, I did the opposite. So before Corona, I had no debt and, uh, besides my massive student loans, but, um, so in Corona, I tried to build a warehouse. So I was trying to raise a million dollars worth of debt. I was trying to build real estate with the debt because what I learned is when you start printing money, um, real estate holds its value. And if you're getting uh, low interest loans, those low interest loans are actually free because if, if inflation goes up to 5% and your loan is 3%, your your loan is free. Free means 0% to me. It's not free money. It's, it's a free interest rate. So that was the goal, but it ended up turning into a pool of low-interest loans that got turned into graded video games because one of the rules with some of the loans, like the EIDL, was you had to spend it on a rent, lease, mortgage, or inventory. Since the, the warehouse failed, I had to spend that on inventory, which means I had to buy WADA. I was forced to buy WADA. And... um I guess I got to take a break and get into how to turn that macro investment into something that means something in game investing. Well, podcasting is a little bit of art because I had all these plans. I was going to talk about 20 brands, companies, projects, but I guess we're going to leave it at the big three and um, try to wrap up macro. So the thing I did differently and the reason I didn't lose – everything again in Corona, which, you know, my heart goes out to restaurant owners, um, travel agents, uh, you know, entertainment based companies, all the things that basically shut down in Corona. I know, I know how it feels. I've been through it twice. I've lost it all twice. Um, so bad that I ended up in mental hospitals and, uh, uh, I, I don't know how I survived other than family I mean family family is really the big one um, if if you're if you're if you're uh, you know if you're having a bad time with your family members I would say forgiveness love and uh, thank you and and gratitude and, and it's just the basic golden rules. Um, I I had a lot of anger with my dad over the years and we're we're at a good place now. Um we we were battling with each other for decades, but I think I think it does take a lot of war stories to get to the point of gratitude, forgiveness, humbleness, just happy to be alive every day. I think today's Veterans Day and that's something to think about, you know, we are lucky to live in America. Um We are so lucky we have freedom of speech, freedom of opinion, freedom of the press, you know, some diversity. And uh, uh, generally, it's safe compared to a lot of places around the country. And you can pretty much start any business anywhere at any time for very little money. You can hop on the Internet, get on a phone. It's never been easier to start up. Um, But the question is, how do you become one of the people like me that's left standing after ten or twenty years in entrepreneurship, uh, unless you believe the get rich people? I'm not one of them, you know. I'm a survivor. I've uh, tried twenty times to get rich uh, or, or follow a dream. It's not really get rich. It's follow a dream. And oftentimes it's like, oh, I'm sitting on all this inventory. It would be fun to open a store. You know, that's how it was for me. Um, I kind of gave up on those massive dreams after the first time around. But um, this whole WADA thing, really, it wasn't a dream. Um, I moved from a no-income state to a no-sales tax state because I was doing a lot of laptops, which is another business I was going to talk about, but I just don't have time. I mean, I basically have too much content, and I need a team. If you want to help me out, I'd like to start a magazine, a YouTube channel, multiple podcasts. I'd like to build an app, uh, multiple websites. I have so much content. It's just scary in my brain. Um, I need a team of writers, editors, videographers, audio guys, audio women, advertising women, marketing women. Um, I need people that are experts in sports cards, coins, comic books, video games, I would like people in publishing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let me get back to what I was talking about, about the macro. So um, diversification, I think, is, I think there's two big wisdoms, tools. When I talk about these wisdoms, these are tools you can carry forever. Diversification, we hear it all the time on the stock market, but I think something that I was hard headed with looking back for the first 15 years in cards was that I was unwilling to diversify into Pokemon, um, Yu Gi Oh, Magic the Gathering, memorabilia. Um, You know, I did try to diversify into records, videos, tapes, t shirts, skateboards, and it failed. It didn't really fail. Uh, That's another story. Um, That was a landlord dispute. You know, once again, it was a macro, something I couldn't control. He said either stop the skate shop, go back to cards, or, uh, you know, I'm not going to renew your lease. And I said, bye-bye, I'm leaving. So I was a pretty hard-headed, angry, young entrepreneur for most of my life. I'm pretty much different now. Um, Diversification in games, I think, is important. And I've probably made that mistake. I, uh, I went way too hard into Atari 2600. Um... I should have went more into Nintendo, and to be honest, I'm way hard in NES. And uh, if I was looking from the outside, I should probably diversify into other platforms. In raw sealed, I'm completely diversified. But in graded, um, because of the rules that the government and the SBA set up, I was forced to buy high-dollar pieces quickly in Corona after getting the EIDL. And that led me to Atari because at the time, that was the only thing I knew, and um, those were the pieces that were going for a thousand, three3,000. The NES stuff, I had no idea. I I wasn't an expert. I didn't grow up on that. I I had to take you know eighty hour weeks for six months straight to learn NES. Today, I feel like I kind of got it. You know, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with my NES now. I'm looking at turtles right now on my desk, which kind of represents something that I didn't grow up with, something I don't understand, but I kind of get it now. The print runs on the comic books is really what flipped the light bulb off. Thank you, WADA, for getting this recasing back. Um, I might put this up in a trade towards a Zelda first print CIB. Turtles 3 Manhattan Project 9.0 with a 9.0 box, 9.2 cart, and 8.0 manual. That's pretty nice. So I'm really happy I got into NES. I love NES, even though I didn't grow up with the system. It has nothing to do with nostalgia. It's strictly investing in inventory and diversification. So I think diversification is something that I could have done earlier. I could have done better. I've done it in the stock market and it doesn't always work out. So diversification is kind of a hit and miss. I don't say it's an end all, you know, live all wisdom, but it is something you can carry. And I think that's the difference between wisdoms and takeaways and lessons. Wisdoms happen after failures. And they're really universal truths that carry through macro across the globe. So when I say diversification, that could be a card shop in Tokyo. That can be a failing bank in Thailand. That can be, you know, an airplane going into the Twin Towers and people dying. Diversification can cut across all that. And in today in Corona for a restaurant, that obviously means you need eight iPads you need to be on uber lyft you need to be on all the platforms and i think i think for video gaming same thing um, if you're investing in inventory um, if you really want to sell this inventory efficiently to the largest community if you want to build the largest following you need to be on all the platforms not this platform is better than that platform because that's again the macro you can't control the algorithms You can't control where the future generations are going to buy their games. All you can control is where you put your effort. So I'm trying to do it all. It's impossible. I'm doing 80 hour weeks, including thinking, creating, editing content. When I say 80 hour weeks, that's sitting in bed for two hours, thinking, 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 thinking strategy, thinking about one sentence for an hour, uh, thinking about a picture, a video. So Thinking about what to buy, what credit card to pay off first, what loan to manage, blah, 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 blah. Diversification across inventory, that would be systems, uh, CIB versus sealed. So pure diversification would be 50% sealed, 50% CIB, uh, 50% VGA, 50% WADA. And then, you know, 10% PS1, 10% PS2, 10% PS3, 10% NES, 10% 2600, 10% PC, 10% uh, GameCube, whatever. Um, that would be pure theoretical, like if I was in a classroom doing a slide, that would be pure diversification. And then if you want to take it to a global level, Ray Dalio, Warren Buffett, now you want to add in Pal. Master System Europe, Game Boy Europe, um, possibly Asian. Like the Mike Tyson, I do believe, has a five, there might be a five screw Hong Kong cart. That would be considered diversification in my Mike Tyson portfolio. Like maybe I have too many white bullets. Maybe I need more orange bullets. I need a Hong Kong cart. I need a five screw. I need a five screw white, a five screw Hong Kong. Um, Diversification has many, many answers. And like I said, try something new. Try to write down on a little notepad. Write down, you know, do the magic wand test. If I gave you a million dollars today, before you buy games, write down a little notepad and say, write a little picture of a pie and say, okay, I want to break my million dollars up into, okay, uh, 50% NES, 10% 10% 2600 I want to take a chance on the Wii because I think it's a sleeping giant. I want to do 10% there. Write it down. Think about it. Before you open your retro game shop, you know, this is something I never did. You know, I always just open my stores with the inventory sitting in my living room and garage or whatever. Actually, trailer. I was living in a trailer during those days. A funky, dingy, dusty little trailer. You know, that's where my company started. On a napkin, in a trailer at a Denny's in Tokyo. I started from nothing, nothing at all. If I could go back in time, that's one thing I'd like to get on the napkin is my inventory on a pie chart and what is in the inventory from the macro point of view. In other words, not the prices, not the specific games, but maybe the regions, the, the platforms. You know, start big and, and then go small. So the other thing I want to m- mention about macro which really got me through today uh, in COVID-19, which was my third global financial crisis. The first two almost killed me. Um, this one, I did go insane for a while, but you know what's funny is this podcast was recorded during the tail end of the insanity. So um, I got priceless content. Um, so diversification in content. So that would be words... Videos, pictures. That's pretty easy to understand. Diversification on platforms, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, I think are the big five. And the other thing, if you're building a business, this doesn't really apply if you're a strict investor. But if you're investing in inventory for a company, it's okay to use debt, as far as I'm concerned. Target uses debt. Walmart uses debt. Amazon uses debt. I'm sure most retro game shop owners use debt. Um, Comic book dealers use debt. Everyone uses debt that's that's, uh, playing the inventory game because inventory takes time to flip. Every car dealer, by the way, doesn't own the cars on the lot. They have uh, financing with the manufacturers. So Toyota, GM, those are banks. Manufacturers are banks the dealers are you know you know they're they're pretty much relying on on the big boys so the beautiful thing about your retro game shop online is you're diversified uh, globally so you could look into eBay Canada eBay France Amazon Canada whatever you can diversify regionally but the question is what about your inventory and financing the inventory now credit is something i want to talk about on the podcast it's a hot topic but The companies that survived Corona are the ones with strong balance sheets and credit. And a strong balance sheet doesn't mean no debt. A strong balance sheet means good assets, some cash, and the ability to draw on low-cost debt at any time. So a strong company is someone that has a credit line that's able to use it at any time. They have some credit at a low interest rate, but they also have solid assets and cash in the bank to get through the short term. It's called survival. So any stock that you see that's high, that's gonna be a company with strong balance sheet. And those are the companies that have the best credit scores and they have the ability to get the best credit. Well, we're not big. So what we can control, we can't control the macro, we can control our own credit score, and we can control the credit score of our company. And that's what I did in COVID-19. During 9-11, the Asian financial crisis, and my last 10 businesses, maybe even more, um, I didn't have a 100% handle on credit. This time around, I did. Um, I had uh, multiple credit profiles, um, incredible credit scores. Um an, you know, entity along with uh, family credit, personal credit, business credit. And I was able to tap that credit day one of COVID-19, turn that into inventory. And um, I've never had a uh, larger inventory in my entire life. I have more inventory today than any other uh, company I've ever owned in the past. Um, I guess pre nine eleven, I got up to maybe 50 grand. Maybe 30 grand in inventory, actually. Um, Asian financial crisis export peak. Um, Those are my two biggest companies. So I got up to maybe, you know, at any given moment, I probably had maybe 10, 20, 30. But, uh, you know, we're up six figures and I guess we're shooting for seven on eBay. Um, I, I think we're up over a half million on eBay right now. And probably if you look at all the platforms I'm on, you could probably find high retail value somewhere near the million dollar range if I end up listing all this stuff. So credit is really how I got there. And I'm going to try to drop a lot of uh, content around credit. Uh, you let me know if that's a good topic. I am a credit expert. I know everything there is to know about FICO and business credit and EIN and Duns and Experian and Equifax and you know i i've got a credit line for 50,000 at 3.25% and it's interest only so you can draw that thing 50,000 you can drop that into inventory get your uh, get your company started with 50,000 worth of inventory and guess how much interest you're paying every month you know you're paying uh, let's do the calculation that's another thing you should learn is how to run a calculator 50,000 times .0325 That's $1,625 interest per year. Divide that by 12, $135 a month. So you can start, if you build up your credit and you build up an entity, which I think you can get started with a thousand bucks, you can go get a credit line for $50,000, and it's up too. You can draw five grand at a time, ten grand at a time. Let's say a nice Zelda comes up and you want to get that for two grand. You can draw the two then. It's kind of like a jumbo credit card, but it, it has a, a checkbook attached to it. The most beautiful credit in the world is an American EIN Dun and Bradstreet based LLC, it could be single member, with a uh Experian business profile. Which I can teach you how to start, and I will do that on the podcast. Um, that draws an LOC line of credit from a local bank, a large bank, uh, up to fifty grand because that's no doc, low doc, which means you don't have to give your tax returns usually, and you can get this money for three, four, five percent right now, and that's like a hundred and fifty dollar payment per month. I'm gonna say that again. You can get 50000 up to 50000 in inventory to start your retro game shop, online, wherever, and pay $150 a month, payments. Okay, that is the dirty little secret behind real estate, behind all the flippers, behind all the get-rich. It's interest only. Um, I know that guy's in trouble, but Grant Cardone... Um, I don't know if he's gone bankrupt or not, but that's how he built his billion dollar empire of apartment buildings, um, is interest-only loans. That is the secret. You basically borrow the capital from the bank. The bank finances the entire inventory just like an auto dealership, just like a car dealer. A car dealer owns the building maybe, but they don't own the cars. So the cars are on the balance sheet of Toyota or GM or whatever, and, and that's the bank, and they're probably paying interest only. So they're paying small little payments. When the car sells and they bundle the loans to another bank, then they go make a large payment to Toyota Bank. I hope that's not too complicated. Bottom line is you can start your retro game shop with somewhere around $1,000. Follow me. Ask me how to build credit. Build your credit up, which is free. You might have to order a few things from Staples, Uline, or Office Depot and of course never pay late always pay on time always pay early whatever get up to a good credit score build a relationship with a banker that can answer the phone go get a credit line for 345% you know and by this time you have your little notepad you know exactly how to diversify your inventory because you've done research on what your customers want and josh from sidequest said it right the difference between collecting and dealing is when you're collecting, you're buying what you like. When you're dealing, you're buying what your customers like. You're buying what your friends like. You're buying what your network, your relationships, your clients like. Once you have your notepad for that, you put those two together. You put your diversification. You add your credit. You're only paying 150 dollars a month. Then you're paying your eBay stuff. So maybe you're paying you know, dollars to $1,000 a month in rent and fees and interest. And you're up and running with $50,000 in inventory. Now that's way easier than when I was a kid and I was, you know, dropping 10, 20, 30 into a retail brick and mortar and, you know, insurance and employees and all that other stuff. So hopefully, um, these war stories have teased out two of the most important wisdoms, which we're saying, uh, is the macro and the lessons are really diversification and credit are ways that you can get started And if you do it smart and pay your bills on time or early and don't go down the rabbit hole, um, you can do it like the big boys do, like the car dealerships, like the real estate developers, like the apartment owners, like the management companies out there, like the big companies like Amazon, Target, Walmart, you know, uh, all the companies out there that basically flip inventory. So. Uh, just be careful out there. Play life like a video game. Try something new and try it on a napkin, you know, And 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 go back to that napkin every month or so. Make sure it's dialed in before you draw any credit. You know, I want to make sure you have a business plan before you get into the credit world. Because there's a dirty side to that world and that came crashing down on me once. But if you got the macro and you got the micro on your, on your napkin, you got the macro from listening to me and your wisdoms and your lessons and your takeaways, that's as good as you can do. That's as good as you can do. The other piece is the team, and I can't really advise on that. I've been trying to build a team for 35 years, and I'm still trying to build a team right as we speak. Um, but those three pieces, macro, micro, team, that's as good as you can go. That will make you a Navy SEAL as you go into battle. Like Mark Cuban says, outwork everybody out there. Learn everything you can about your industry, about your platform, about your grading company, uh, about your uh, platforms that you sell on, um, and you should be fine. You should be able to quit your day job. You know, it's not a get rich; it's a get smart. You know, be wise uh, and become a master. Along the way. Enjoy the process. Don't do it for the money. You know, go into battle, go into war completely prepared for a win or a loss. Make sure you can handle a loss as well as a win. Make sure you can handle a desert storm, a 9-11, a COVID-19, an Asian financial banking crisis, a global Lehman bankruptcy financial crisis, a currency crisis, the next economic recession. Make sure you have tools, wisdom, knowledge, diversification, credit, everything to be prepared for that stuff. And if you need help, hit me up. I'm here to help. I'm here to give back. Um, that'll do it for today. Uh, I didn't get to go over Grayton Games, Atchison Racing, um, Fourth and Goal retail shop that I sold to a customer, uh, tried to start a car dealership with a buddy on Craigslist, um, my laptop and electronics businesses that blew out of Vegas. Um, I got a lot more war stories, but those are the ones that had atomic bombs. And I think those are probably the most important because we did tease out two really important things. So play life like a video game. Try something new. Try to pull out a napkin, wave a magic wand, pretend you won the lottery, and get serious. Write on the napkin not what you want to collect, but a diversified inventory that you think would do very well in the next year, three years, five years, and ten years. Those are the magic numbers in business, 3, 5, and 10. If you get to 10 years, you are a master.